and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we got my friend, I see him patting his fro. We just had a ball last week, like a ball last week at CBCF. Um, we were on a panel together. He's one of the smartest men I know, none other than Ellie Mister. What's up, man? How you doing, Bakari? How are, I'm doing great today. You're doing great today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's about to be Supreme Court season, so trying to tell all the people all the new ways that the Supreme Court will take away their rights and stomp on their dignity. So look, let, let's do this. Let's hop right into it. You know, this you've been on the show before, and we consider you a friend of the show. We'll skip our usual introductory questions and just jump right into what you're talking about, about the Supreme Court term. Can you help people understand how um, this affirmative action case that we just read or was handed down um, doesn't try to doesn't just affect folks trying to go to places like Harvard, but it also affects, uh, you know, folk who are applying to Clemson or University of South Carolina, um, because I think people may have missed the boat thinking this is only about Ivy League schools we're talking about, but it, we're not correct. Yeah, people are always focused on the on the elitism of the institutions when people need to start thinking about how this uh, ruling is going to be enforced. OK, so what the court said is that you can no longer use race as a factor in your admissions uh, uh, decisions. OK, how do you prove that? All right, because because it, people for it's not like the admissions committee at any school is going to say, oh, well, you know, we only let this black person in because they were black. No, no. That's not ever. That's not how it works. That not. That's not how it used to work. It's not how it's going to work. So how do you prove to a, a court, to a lawyer, that you are no longer using race in admissions? Well, Bakari, there's only one way, and that way is to reduce the number of black students admitted at your university. And yes, that applies to Harvard and UNC, the two named plaintiffs, the defendants in the case. But it's also going to apply to Clemson, to uh, Baylor to any school that you can think of, because what the lawyers will do is that they will look at the number of students that you admitted, number of black students that you admitted before the ruling, then look at how many you admit this coming year, next year, the new matriculation rates. And if it's the same, if because you found different ways to get diversity in your class, they're going to say, oh, you're actually just using race. Because the presumption from the court and from the white lawyers running the show is that black students do not deserve to get into school, do not deserve to be represented at universities. And so the only way that you can prove that you've following the court's order is to reduce the number of students. And that is not just me talking out of the back of my backside. Okay. That is me listening to former Trump advisor, chief ghoul, Stephen Miller, who has already put out a video. He has some known organization. He's already put out a video threatening, in this case, specifically law schools with lawsuits if they uh, should refuse to follow the Supreme Court's order. How is Stephen Miller going to know whether or not a law school is following the Supreme Court's order or not? Again, it's going to be whether or not schools artificially reduce the number of Black people in law schools. That's what's going to happen. And Bakari, and I know you've talked to these people too, that is what university lawyers are telling their admissions committees right now that the way that to, to comply with this new ruling is going to end up being reducing the number of black students in school. So if you thought that this was going to, if you thought this was a, this was a, 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 a first class problem, right? Is this is, this is going to apply to like eight black kids applying to Harvard and now they're going to be seven. No, 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 no. 
This is going to have effects up and down throughout the educational industry, whether we're talking about um, a state college in Pennsylvania or whether we're talking about the best law school or medical school in the country. Let's also, you know, I'm going to have some of my HBCU folks come around. But logically, if I play this out in my head, it says that um, HBCUs will probably need more capacity and black families will probably begin to look um, at HBCUs uh, and look at them as an opportunity now and probably rightfully so um, in a post affirmative action space. What should we be asking for from the federal government here around money for capacity? Um, because I believe that may be the potential silver lining. Yeah, look, the. <laughs> Uh, as as a, 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 a mutual friend of ours, I won't I won't blow blow up their spot on your show, but a mutual friend of ours um, said, "Why will we go to places where we ain't wanted?" Correct, right? And and HBCUs want us, and so what what's going to have to happen is more federal funding for HBCUs to make those institutions a palace of education even more than they already are. Uh, uh, I like to point out one of the reasons that Harvard is Harvard is because of the immense amount of money Harvard is able to drop, not just on the education, but on the teachers, on the libraries, on the lecturers, on the whole thing. The endowment for Harvard University, there is a list of, you know, most, uh, the best, richest endowments um, from a private organization. Uh, number one on that list is the Vatican, right? Number one on that list is the Catholic freaking church. Number yeah. two, is Harvard University, right? So that's that's the kind of money that Harvard rolls in when we're talking about this. That's not the kind of money that Morehouse rolls in with, right? That's not the kind of money um, that Spellman rolls in with, right? So if we're gonna try to, if we're gonna elevate those schools, we've got to get their endowments up, not just through through alumni's private, you know, boosters and all that kind of stuff, but we've got to get that government money up to the same level, at least of like a University of Michigan, at least uh, of of as the as the UC system out in California, um, we need more funding uh, for our HBCUs since apparently they're the only places that actually want to have black people involved and educated. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Put the pull your crystal ball out and predict some of the downstream effects for the students for fair admission. We already see Republican AGs attacking scholarship programs, corporate DEI programs, et cetera. What should we be looking out for? Well, we have to look at what Ed Bloom's doing next, right? For reasons that it are, are difficult to explain, this one old um, angry white man, aggrieved white man, who has made it his life's work to defeat affirmative action, well, he finally won. Ed Bloom, who's the lead 
uh, not the lead litigant, the lead organizer of the litigants in this recent affirmative action case. This is the fifth time that he's taken a shot at affirmative action. And he finally won. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what do you get for the man who has everything? Oh, he's going to come after employers next. That's already what he's doing. He's starting lawsuits against employers who value diversity in the workplace. Right. So like from Ed Bloom's perspective, black people should not be in public. Right. From Ed Bloom's perspective, the, the best place, place for black people is in somebody's kitchen. Right. And he don't like it when black people are integrated in to the rest of society. So having won his battle against colleges and universities, he is now taking the fight to corporate America. He's taking it to to, to corporate employers. And you got to remember, Bakari, I honestly believe and you can call me naive. I honestly believe that most schools, especially the good schools, legitimately want diversity in their matriculating classes because they understand that diversity make benefits the education for everybody, right? They understand that people learn better in a diverse environment than they do in a monoculture environment, right? Um, but I am talking about universities that are generally, you know, people do not get into college admissions for the money, right? Right? When you roll into corporate America, you've got a lot of people who are only uh, paying lip service to diversity um, for uh, to kind of keep out of the papers, right? You got a lot of, uh, of of organizations and employers who don't actually believe in diversity. Now, Bakari, you and I know that they are wrong. You and I also know that diversity in the workplace increases your profits, uh, decreases groupthink in the workplace, makes your company more agile, more able to handle new challenges, and not for nothing, Black people spend money too. And we know for a fact that when you have a more diverse working environment, your products are more uh, um, tailored to getting some of those black and brown dollars um, that you might otherwise miss. So we know that the employers who don't value diversity are wrong on straight economic grounds, but never underestimate a person's ability to be stupid, right? Even when it comes to their own wallet. And so you have employers who are kind of socially against the idea of diversity. And now Ed Bloom is giving them a perfect opportunity to say that, yeah, we don't actually need it. It's illegal hmm. if we try to find um, a, di a diverse working environment. And so that that's going to be the next attack. It's also going to come at the government, right? Um, any Minority contracting. Am I minority being... contracts, empowerment zones, all that kind of stuff. Bloom is going to come for all of that as well. And they're all going to use this recent Supreme Court uh, decision about affirmative action as their starting point, as their precedent to say that uh, diversity initiatives are violative of the 14th Amendment. And I know this isn't a law show, so I don't want to go too legal nerdy. In the oh, legal. please go look, go legal nerding, because the next thing we're going to talk about is ethics or lack thereof. <laughs> but, but remember that the core argument from the Supreme Court here is such bunk, is such complete tripe. The, the argument is that the 14th Amendment excludes the ability to have diverse environments because it violates equal protection. Even though we know, if you were an originalist, you'd know that the 14th Amendment was passed specifically so we could have racial, ra racially restorative justice programs, right? The 14th Amendment was passed so that, was ratified so that they could pass the 1866 Civil Rights Act and the 1878 Civil Rights Act, right? Like that's, that's what the 14th Amendment is for. So to use now the 14th Amendment against the very people it was meant to help 
is one of the the the, the biggest the biggest versions of bad faith legal hypocrisy that I have seen from this conservative Supreme Court. And I do not say that idly because we see a lot of hypocrisy from this conservative Supreme Court. Let's flip the let's stay in the same area, but let's flip the script just a little bit. Let's talk about the ethics of the Supreme Court or lack thereof, because I don't think people truly understand or can grasp why, you know, Clarence Thomas can be a, a city girl and get flued out everywhere. And, you know, it, it's tough for them to understand how that's OK. And then, you know, think about if in an alternate universe, if Justice Kentonji Brown Jackson was doing the same thing Clarence Thomas is doing, how do we analyze that? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say it's not OK. Nothing about Clarence Thomas is OK. Nothing. <laughs> man is above board. Um, Clarence Thomas is, to my knowledge, the most corrupt Supreme Court justice in history. All right. I don't have good records about what first Chief Justice John Marshall was doing um, with his cousins. But from from where I sit, Clarence Thomas is the most corrupt Supreme Court justice in history. The reason why he gets away with it is because Republicans have no uh, sense or will to police their own people, right? So there are two ways that you could do something about the rolling ethical disaster that is Clarence Thomas. One is the constitutional um, option of impeachment. The only way to remove a sitting Supreme Court justice or any federal judge, to be honest, um, is through the constitutional process of impeachment that we saw play out twice with Donald Trump, right? It's yeah. got to be uh, passed in the Senate, impeached in the, in, the, in, the, in the House, convicted in the Senate with a supermajority. Yeah. And we know that Republicans, both in, who control the House right now, will not impeach their boy, and I say <laughs> that on purpose, Clarence Thomas, and we know that the Senate will not convict their boy, right? So right. that's problem number one. This So absent impeachment the only other just force or institution or person in this story that could do anything to cable the corruption of clarence thomas is his boss chief justice john roberts and why and is he she, not why is he not taking any action there are a couple of reasons one chief justice john roberts doesn't care like he like like the idea that clarence thomas is corrupt doesn't bother thomas uh, uh roberts because they're kind of all on the take in some way right Go look up how John Roberts makes his money, right? His wife is a multi-million dollar legal recruiter. That means that what she does is place lawyers with other law firms. Oh, I didn't know that. It's super helpful when let me, you're- Let me ask you a question though. When people compare this to uh, Justice Sotomayor taking, I think a nearly $3 million in book advances, but not recusing herself when her publishing company had a case before the court, what's the response? Well, first of all, at least she wrote something. Right. She she did something for that. Right. She wrote a whole ass book. What did Clarence Thomas do? Get his free vacation. Right. He sold opinions is what he did. Right. So I, I, I just as a starting point, the gulf between the behavior is ridiculous to me. Number two, we know that Sotomayor was selling a book. Right. That was not secret information until ProPublica started dropping the people's elbow on Clarence Thomas. We didn't know about all of these trips and vacations and boondoggles. Right. So let, that's big uh, difference. Number two. But my actual response, Bakari, is this. If you don't like Citizen Mayor making a whole bunch of money selling her books, that's fine. Let's pass an ethics reform bill that prevents Sotomayor from making yeah. a bunch of money selling her books. And I don't know, also prevents Clarence Thomas from taking boondoggles from Nazi uh, collector enthusiasts. 
All right. Let's also pass an ethics bill that that requires if if we want Sotomayor to recuse herself when her publishing company has a case in front of the Supreme Court. Let's also uh, pass an ethics uh, reform bill that prevents that makes Clarence Thomas have to recuse himself when his wife is under investigation for her participation in the January 6th uh, coup attempt. And Thomas is sitting on cases about whether or not those documents are going to become public. Right. Let's pass an ethics reform bill that does all of it. Right. Because I'm not going to. I'm not going to stand in front of a train for Sotomayor making $3 million uh, uh, on a book if that's the reason that it takes for Republicans to get behind an ethics reform bill. Fine, let's 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 reform it all. But what we're not going to do is sit here and say that Sotomayor is just as bad or just the same or they're all corrupt and so there's nothing we can do. All right, that, that, that's what I'm not here for. Because if you ask me, as far as I know, the only uncorruptible justice on the court is Elena Kagan, who, I mean, this is a lady, I'm, I, and I, I know her a bit, I, I, I had a class with her when I was in law school, this is a lady that will not take free locks on her bagel, uh, because she's the Supreme Court justice, right? Um, Katanji Brown-Jackson, you brought her up earlier, what would be happening if it was her? I think Katanji knows that she can't play with this, because um, when we looked at, and she's new on the court, so we don't have you know the 31-year history of graft that we have with Thomas, to look into, but with uh, Jackson, her first uh, disclosure form disclosed that she got a fifteen hundred dollar bouquet of flowers from Oprah Winfrey, right? So she is she is reporting things down to the level of who sent her nice flowers. By the way, I would love to look at what a fifteen hundred dollar. I was about to say, don't uh, we got to edit that because if my wife hear that, she can be right. like, "That's got to be some that. botanical gardens kind of level of stuff." We can like, do or something, but go ahead. I know that that happened because. Because Jackson disclosed it, right? So, like, I don't think that the that the liberal the what the liberal justices do, as far as I can tell, is at least tell you the perks that they're getting. The conservative justices are the ones that are trying not to tell you about it, which to me suggests why they are they themselves know that what they are doing is beyond the pale. Because if they were confident with it, they would tell everybody. See, Clarence Thomas doesn't tell people when he takes these vacations. Samuel Alito doesn't tell people when he takes these vacations. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, I think, really interestingly, you know, he had a piece of real estate that was on the market for two or three years before he was Supreme Court justice. He gets elevated to the Supreme Court. That real estate sells in two weeks to a partner at a law firm that consistently is up in front of his court, uh, in front of the Supreme Court with litigation. Now, Neil Gorsuch disclosed the real estate sale but he didn't disclose who he sold it to. And so that right there tells you that Gorsuch knew that he just, by the way, Gorsuch disclosed other perks, gifts, whatever, and who gave it to them. But that one, no, no, he kept that secret. The justices themselves know that they are dirty. And so that is why they are trying to keep it from the public. And that's how you know that there's a difference. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. 
Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, I, I, I got you here, so I'm going to ask you a few questions I've been wanting to ask you. First, give me your assessment of Joe Biden and their nominations and appointments uh, to the judiciary. I think they've done extremely well, especially by comparison to other Democrats. But talk about what you think in their assessment. Joe Biden has been the best president in terms of appointing judges in American history. And I am including his uh, Democratic predecessor, Barack Obama. When it comes to diversity, both racial, ethnic, gender, LGBTQ, he is off the charts in terms of the most diverse judicial appointments of any president um, in modern history, again, that I know of. Um, And he also has, and I know this is near and dear to your heart, Bakari, he also has been great in terms of experiential diversity. He has appointed more former public defenders defenders than any president in history. He has appointed judges from a wider variety of law schools than any president in history. Like just the number of law schools that he has picked for his appointments have been better than any president in history. Joe Biden has been great with the appointments he's been allowed to make. Where the problems come is that he is playing according to the old pre-Mitch McConnell Merrick Garland rules in terms of the appointments he is allowed to make. And so there are a lot of things that are cabling the number of appointments he's allowed to make. Uh, Dick Durbin on the Senate Judiciary Committee still... um, uh, Let's let's get in the weeds then. Let's get in the weeds. Because one of the things I want to... I know that you have a poster of Dick Durbin up in your house and you you look at it every day before you leave and you say, there's my guy. Talk Talk about the blue slip process. And and where we are and how it ties into judicial appointments and why you think blue slips are dumb as fuck. So by Senate tradition, not a rule, not a law, not a constitutional principle, by Senate tradition, before the president appoints a federal judge in any of the particular regions or districts, the senators from that region or district, the senators from that state get to approve of the appointment regardless of party. They send what is called a blue slip if they approve of the appointment. So if Biden wants to appoint a federal judge in Texas, he has to wait on the blue slip approval of Senators Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. If Biden wants to make an appointment in Wisconsin, he's got to wait on the blue slip approval of Ron Johnson, even though Ron Johnson is only one of two senators from Wisconsin. And if those senators refuse to return a blue slip on those federal judges, by Senate tradition, the party in power does not appoint them. Now, 
That sounds well and good. Let I'll give you one guess about who broke the Senate tradition when the shoe was on the other foot. And that man's name is Mitch McConnell. Because when Trump was the president and uh, Dem- and and the Republicans controlled the Senate and Democrats refused to return blue slips on various appointments to the Second Circuit, which generally covers New York, and the Ninth Circuit that generally covers California. Guess what? McConnell, Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham, oh, they ignored the hell out of blue slips and put the most conservative justices, uh, judges they could find onto the courts in those circuits. Now, according to Dick Durbin, who is now the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, McConnell respected blue slips for district judges, but didn't respect them for circuit court appointments. And so that's what Durbin's going to do. But that is BS. Because A, again, McConnell already broke the rule once. And B, well, it's a, it hits a little bit different because, frankly, Democratic senators in blue states are very casual about their blue slip appointments. So they would return blue slips. Kristen Gillibrand returned blue slips on Trump-appointed judges in New York, right? But of course, Cornyn and, and, and Cruz never return a blue slip. Johnson never returns a blue slip. You also have to look at why they're not returning blue slips, right? Ron Johnson in Wisconsin is refusing to return a blue slip on a federal judge appointment simply because he's gay. Simply because the judge is openly gay and Johnson does, doesn't like gay people. Like, that's it, right? And so how are you going to be Dick Durbin and you're going to respect that, right? You're going to respect that blue slip? Are you kidding me, Durbin? But this is what Durbin does. Durbin is, when I say he is a traditionalist, I mean that in the worst way possible. That He, he simply refuses to get the memo about what, what he's up against, right? And that's why we're not in the fight. That's why Durbin is still out here sending nice letters, to John Roberts, oh, please, John, would you come and talk to my committee? No, get that out of my face. And Durbin, oh, well, what are we going to do? He Durbin, Durbin refuses to fight for the courts, which is insane making because he is the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So as you see, Ellie has some opinions on Dick Durbin. One of the things I, I want to cover two more quick things before I get you out of here. We try to keep our show to 30 minutes so people who are riding on the train or working out can get the whole show in. Um but I did want to talk to you about two things. One of the unique things about our conversation last week was you were able to articulate uh, why um, expanding the court was actually historically proven to be okay. A lot of people believe the court only had has always had nine people on it. But you went through a timeline. Can you go through that timeline for us today? No problem, man. All right. So we are at nine justices by a political compromise, right? That's not how we started. We started at the founding in 1787. The Supreme Court, the first one, had six judges on it, six justices appointed to the Supreme Court. John Adams reduced the number to five. Thomas Jefferson put the number back up to seven. Andrew Jackson put it up to nine because Andrew Jackson hated the National Bank and he needed judges who were going to uh, uh, overturn the National Bank. So he needed two more. So he put it up to nine. Abraham Lincoln bumped it up to 10 because he was sick of dealing with a racist ass Roger Taney. So he threw another justice on to make Taney's life horrible. Lincoln dies. Um, the Congress and everybody hated Andrew Johnson, his replacement. So Congress, to get back at Johnson, reduced the number of judges to seven. And then finally, after all of that tumult, the Judiciary Act of 1869 set the number of judges at nine, and we have been at nine since then. However, let FDR. us not forget FDR. FDR. 
FDR threatened to expand the court to 16 or 17 people. Now, your history books will say that FDR lost his quote-unquote court-packing scheme. But here's the thing, Bakari. FDR was losing all of his New Deal cases in front of a conservative court five to four. Then FDR threatens to expand the court by up to eight members, eight or nine members. And then all of a sudden, a justice named Owen Roberts, no relation to John Roberts, um, changed his vote. And FDR went from losing New Deal cases five to four to winning New Deal cases five to four. I would love to be a failed court expander in the mold of FDR because FDR won. Your history wow. books can say they lost. No, FDR won because the New Deal was a thing. So what we see from all of this is that historically speaking, the constitutionally preferred method of handling a Supreme Court that is grossly out of step with the will of the people is to change the number of judges. Thomas Jefferson added judges because the, all of the judges were Federalists and he was a Democratic Republican and he needed more Democratic Republicans on the court. Andrew John Jackson, like I said, a specific issue with the National Bank. Abraham Lincoln, like I said, a specific issue with, you know, whether or not we're a democracy. Um, the, the, and FDR, what, when, when the court gets grossly out of step, the Constitution doesn't allow you to remove just, justices, right? It doesn't allow you to over to simply ignore the Supreme Court. What the Constitution does allow the elected representatives to do is change the number of judges on the court. It is what the Constitution, court expansion, is what the Constitution prefers. So let's, so I, well, my, my biggest argument for court expansion is let's just do what the Constitution wants us to do. Ellie, mister, we're going to finish it, end it right there. Let's do what the Constitution wants us to do. I love you, brother. I can't wait to watch you on TV and hang out with you again, eat lunch with you at the Yard Birds or wherever we were. But I appreciate you. Thank you for joining the show. All right. Thanks so much for having me.